Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who changes everything. That nothing is impossible for you, no matter how challenging a situation. We know we can turn to you and rest assured that you have got it. Oh, amen. And friends, it is wonderful to, to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect, and uh, I'm usually in Musenberg, so it is wonderful to be with you. This is one of those mornings where I wonder if the sermon is really necessary because God has really been speaking already. And a lot of what I'm going to say has actually come through the words that have already been brought. So, so God is really at work amongst us this morning, and I hope that we will catch what he is doing and follow him. But... Uh, and I'm here anyway, so I'm going to share with you what I've prepared, and you know, we'll see how it goes. But I think, it's, we, I think we're going to have some fun this morning as we go. Um, many of you will probably not know me because I'm not here often on a Sunday morning. As I said, I'm usually in Musenberg. And uh, so I wanted to share a lesser-known fact about me with you. Um, this is a bit of a confession, really. I, I'm a little bit of a fussy eater. So if you ever invite me around to your house, be warned, fair warning, I'm not the greatest house guest. Um, I have a list of things that I battle to enjoy. Um, apparently, there's a word for what I am. That it's called tactile intolerance, right? And I'm pretty sure that's just a postmodern term to describe someone who's fussy. And, uh, you know, so we can feel better about ourselves, us fussy people, and uh, feel like we have a condition that we can't really help, right? One of the things I'm not very good at eating is, is fruit. And I know that's a real problem. Um, and I know some of you will come and share a word with me from the Lord afterwards about how fruit needs to become a part of my diet. I, I, I do know this. Um, if you had to come visit us at our house, uh, you, it, you would be lucky if you managed to find some fruit there. Every now and again, you might see a few bananas, because uh, my wife does enjoy it to eat bananas now and again. But, but largely, I'm not the biggest fruit person in the world. But I am really big on the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The fruit of the Spirit. You see, Jesus makes a big deal about the fruits of people's lives. And so in, in a part of one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of his message, from verse 15 to 20, you can read it. Jesus says this to the people who are listening to him. He says, I want you to beware of false prophets. They will come among you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. In other words, there will be people who will come a part of your number, who will look like Christians, and, and, but they will they will seek to destroy and to devour and to break down that which God is doing among you. I want, I want you to know that, right? I'm giving you fair warning, Jesus says. And then he, he tells them this very simple statement. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Right? Now, this is, they were an agrarian society, so hopefully they understood that. But in case they didn't, he spelt it out a little bit for them. And he says, do you gather grapes from thorn bushes? Everyone knows you don't get grapes from thorn bushes. What about figs from thistle trees? Anyone gather figs from thistle trees? That's not how it works. Right? She says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree will bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It doesn't work like that. That's not how trees and fruit function. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will ultimately be cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you shall be able to recognize people by the fruit of their lives. So what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying that the fruit of your life, the, the produce, the output, the effect of your life will be a marker to others about what is going on inside. 
by what is going on in your heart. So if you're a bad person, you will leave behind you a trail of destruction and brokenness and hurt because that's just who you are. Right? And if you're a good person, you will leave behind love and peace and grace because that's who you are. And people will feel that when they're around you. And Paul, Paul picks up this idea that Jesus begins in the Sermon on the Mount, and he develops it a little bit for us in Galatians chapter 5. It's quite a famous passage of Scripture. It's quite well known. In fact, if you as a Christian can quote the fruits of the Spirit, um, you know, you're doing quite well. You know, it makes you look very spiritual. You've got a good bite. We'll talk about that later, right? But Paul says when, when you're a Christian, the fruit that you bear in your life will be the produce of the Spirit, Your life will be marked by the Spirit. The decisions that you make will be led by the Spirit. The people that you touch will be touched by the Spirit of God. And the fruit of your life will be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that will be a part of your life when you are led by the Spirit, when you are a Christian. And so for the next six weeks, including this week, we are going to make our way slowly through Galatians chapter 5 in the morning services here at Connect. And and we're going to follow Paul's build-up and his line of reasoning that leads him to explain what the fruit of the Spirit is all about and how that should describe our life as Christians. And as we do that, we're going to be asking the, the question, what does a Christian life really look like? What does it look like to live as a Christian? What should my life look like that when my heart has been redeemed and I'm really following my king? What's the fruit of my life? How, how do people see me? What's the legacy that I leave behind? That's a bit of where we're going to go. Um, I just get to be with you for the first part of that journey. I get to introduce this series and, and then leave it to John and the rest of the team to lead you through it as I head back to Musenberg. But this morning what I want to do for us is I want to set the scene for what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians and to the Galatian churches. And, th- and then we're going to look at this, the first six verses of Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to begin this journey into the fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to I want to start for us, and we're going to have a look at the church in Galatia, and we're going to look a little bit of what what's going on. And the first thing that's important for us to recognize as we dig into Galatians chapter five is to recognize this is a letter that wasn't written to just one church. Right? This was actually Paul on his first missionary journey. He went through and he planted a collection of churches in the province of Galatia, which is a little bit like modern day Turkey. And, uh, and then he wrote this letter to those churches um, in a collective. And yet, despite the fact that he wrote to many churches, you will see as you read this letter, and I encourage you to do that during your time at home, uh, I, you will see an incredible unity of focus. There's this kind of single-hearted aim that Paul carries the whole way through this letter. I, fu- I found it almost unique in the New Testament and how how directive Paul is. He almost never strays from this main goal that he has. And as you read this letter, that goal becomes clearer and clearer. See, what was happening in in the churches in Galatia is that once Paul planted them, he went out on his first missionary trip. He planted a collection of churches. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. You can see the trip that Paul went and the places that he went to. He then left, and as many of you will know, he went on a number of other missionary journeys, and he ultimately ended up in Rome under house arrest for a long period of time. Unfortunately, after he had planted these churches, a couple of other missionaries came. Now, you would think that would be a fortunate thing, but some other missionaries came to these areas, and they also began to teach and to preach to the people in the churches of Galatia. The challenge was they, they had a Jewish heritage. 
They were converted Jews, Jews that had become persuaded by the gospel. They'd given their lives over to Jesus, and they came, and they spoke to a very non-Jewish audience. We call them Gentiles, right? It's the, uh, the New Testament word for people that were not Jewish. They were the Gentiles. And uh, the churches in Galatia were largely Gentile churches. They didn't have a Jewish background. And these Jewish missionaries came, and the problem was they had picked up and adopted into their faith some of the principles and the processes that were involved in Judaism. And so they called these people, these Gentile people, these people that had never been Jews, and they said, well, you know, you are saved by faith in Christ, but you also need to be obedient to the Jewish law to really be saved. Right? Your faith is, is only effective if you obey the law. Right? And, and just so you know that I'm not making this up, I want to show you a couple of passages in um, the letter to the Galatians where we can see this and we can catch the, the heart and the reason why Paul writes this. And you'll see it runs all the way through the book of Galatians. Right? In Galatians chapter 1 from verses 6 to 7, right, Paul says this. He says, guys, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ. Right? I can't believe you're turning away from that already. And you're turning to a different gospel. You've gone from one gospel to another. You used to believe something, and now you're believing something else. Right? Not that there is another gospel, because there is only one gospel. Paul goes on to elaborate. This fake gospel that you've chosen to believe isn't real. It doesn't actually work. And he says this. He says, there are some people who are troubling you, and they are look, seeking to distort the gospel of Christ. Right? These are the missionaries I was telling you about. They've come in, they've distorted the gospel. We'll see how in a moment. Right? Chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, you foolish Galatians. He's really like battling with them. Who has bewitched you? Who has confused you? Who has tricked you? Who has led you down one path when you should be going down another? Right? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this, you that have now decided on this other gospel. Did you receive the Spirit... By doing works of the law? Right, this is a rhetorical question. Or did you receive it in faith when you believed in Christ? Are you so foolish that having begun in the Spirit, have you, having begun by faith in Christ, that you now seek to be perfected in the flesh? Right? And you begin to see here, it's the law that's been added to the gospel. It's the law that's been added to the gospel. It becomes a little bit clearer in Galatians chapter 4. He says, he describes their state before they had become Christians. He said, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Right? And in fact, in case you don't know what that is, he unpacks it a bit more. He says, but now you've come to know God, rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, before you were a Christian, before you received the gospel, you were enslaved to the powers, the spiritual powers of this world, the demonic forces, right? Paul also speaks about that in Ephesians chapter 6, a classic passage on spiritual warfare, right? There were demonic forces that exist, and all of those who are not yet in Christ are under the power of the evil one. And he's saying to them, how can you turn back from Jesus and embrace these things again? And here's how they were doing it. He says, you observe days and months, seasons and years. I'm beginning to wonder if I shared the gospel with you in vain. 
Uh, when he says that, that's quite an overt reference in first century Jewish culture to the Jewish law. Right? They would observe Sabbath days, feast days, feasts of tabernacle. There were very set festivals that you have to observe as a Jewish person. And so these people who are coming and sharing this new gospel with them were telling them that in addition to believing Jesus, they also had to observe these things. We'll close with this one in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, It is those who want to make a good show in the flesh. A good showing in the flesh. In other words, those who want to look good before men. Right? Those who want to look like leaders in front of men, to have a big following on Facebook and Twitter in our day and age. Right? They would force you to be circumcised. They would force you to be circumcised. This is uh, where Paul gets really clear and specific about exactly what it is they were doing. You see, circumcision was kind of the last barrier to entry into the Jewish faith. If you were going to be a proselyte, in other words, if you were going to be a Gentile that became a Jewish believer, you would have to abide by the Jewish law. And obviously the hardest part of that law, because it was really painful and it hurt a lot, was to be circumcised. So you weren't going to do that unless you were 100% committed to now being a Jew. Right, so when Paul speaks to them here, he says, look, they are forcing you to be circumcised. That's symbolic of saying yeah, they are forcing you to now abide by the whole of the Jewish law. You wouldn't do that if you weren't going to do, that, do the whole law. Right? And they did that. Part of the reason they did that is so that they would avoid persecution. Right? And it, cause, because if you were part of the Jewish faith, you were under the protection of the Roman government. You were a religion of antiquity. They allowed you to be Jewish. If your Christianity was not associated with Judaism, you could then be persecuted by the government and forced to obey a Roman religion. That's some of their motivation. Right? But can you see as we look at these passages what was going on in the church? People had come and they were beginning to teach people that in addition to Jesus, in addition to having faith in him, you needed to do a collection of other things. Right, so we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, the first sort of 12 verses are the climax of an argument that Paul has been building from Galatians 2 all the way through to here. So I was a little bit challenged as I began to prepare for this message on how I was going to launch a new series at the end of Paul's arguments as he moves into application. So I hope you've caught a little bit of the challenge that he's been speaking about, and I encourage you to go and read through the book of Galatians, and you'll catch Paul's heart and the things that he's calling people into. But Galatians 5 uh, verse 1 really sums up a lot of what he said already. Right? And you can see it there. He says this. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. These are some of the words that we already got this morning. Right? Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. He's at pains to show the Galatian believers that, that obeying the law doesn't lead to righteousness. It actually only leads to bondage and death and striving and trying really hard to live a good life and to be a good person and to fulfill all the requirements never actually leads to freedom. It leads to bondage. It leads to guilt. It leads to shame, and it leads to death. And so he says, Jesus set you free from that. That's what he came to do. That's what he did in his life and his death on the cross. He has won for you a true and real righteousness with God that you could never get for yourself. You are now free from the struggle and the striving that comes along with the law of trying to be a good believer. You're released to be with God as his people. It's the thing that you've so desperately wanted. And so he, he pleads with them. He, he begs them. He says, guys, please, please, my heart cries out, don't throw away. Don't throw away this freedom that Jesus has won for you by adding the law to it. You're totally going to miss it. You need to love the freedom, treasure it, live in it for the glory of your king. 
That's a summary of the, of the argument he's been making f- through the Old Testament um, from Galatians 2 all the way up to here. Right? And, then, and then he launches into three verses where he really kind of lays it out there for them and really breaks down their thinking and their logic that they've been trying to build up and that's been built into them by these other missionaries. This is what he says from verses 2 to 4. He says, guys, I want, listen, I, I, Paul is telling you this. And he says this because he was the one who planted the churches, so they know him. He's appealing to the relationship that he has with them. He's like, guys, you know me. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lead you astray. I'm not trying to win your favor. You know who I am. And I want, I want you to hear this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, here's what I'm going to say. Christ will be of no benefit to you. Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'm going to say it again in case you haven't got it yet. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you, actually, you need to obey every single regulation in the law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God, see that phrase again, by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. It's really strong language. And he's trying in the plainest terms possible to unpack and explain to the Galatians exactly what their decision to incorporate the law into the gospel had meant. Right? So I've, I've devised a little diagram to hopefully illustrate this nice and, and clearly. So Jackie, I haven't told Jackie about the animations. Hopefully she's going to follow with me and we'll see how it goes. Right? But this is what Paul is saying. He said, you Galatians, you've confused yourselves. You've deceived yourselves into thinking that there are two ways to God. Right? That somehow Jesus and the law are both equally valid. And that you actually need both of them in order to obtain righteousness with God. And he's, he says, guys, you, you, you've totally missed it. You, you can really hear the emotion in his words. You, you haven't understood. Don't you get it? Christ and the law are totally different. They're totally separate. There's no both and with Jesus and the law. Right? So when you choose and you say, you know, well, we have Christ, but we want the law as well. He's saying, you're actually, you're rejecting Jesus. And you're saying that his sacrifice on your behalf was insufficient to make you righteous with God. That's what you're doing. Right? So, Jackie, you can trigger that animation for us, please. This is, this is essentially what they were saying. Right? Let's push the right arrow button. There we go. Oh, it's very pretty. Don't you guys like it? Right. You're replacing Jesus with the law. Right? You now have to complete the entire law, Paul says, and, and he knows. He knows none of them are doing that because there are about 500 regulations in the entire law of Moses. It's serious business. Right? This wasn't what the guys were teaching and preaching. But they, Paul knows even more. He knows that even if they did that, it actually wouldn't help them. Right? That's the, this is the, and I can just feel Paul's heart. He's like really battling at this moment. He's, he's losing it with these guys because they've so botched their theology and their faith. And they've so misunderstood what the gospel is all about. Right? He's, he knows that the law was never designed to make someone righteous before God. I want to say that again. It's a very important statement. The law was never designed to make someone righteous before God. It was designed to point people to Him and for them to place their trust, their faith, and their reliance on Him. That's what the law was designed to do. And this, that, so that's really significant. If you don't believe me, I want to encourage you. Read through the book of Galatians. Follow Paul's argument as he begins to explain that. I'm going to show you just a few passages where he kind of brings that up and, and helps us understand that. Right, so let's, let's have a look. Galatians chapter 3. 
three verses there. He says, in verse 11, he says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Right? So straight up, you, the law doesn't justify you before God. In fact, the righteous person will live by faith. Right? The righteous person lives by faith. Faith is the thing that's actually going to justify you before God. So why do we have the law then? He anticipates their question. He says the law was added because of transgressions, because of sin, because people were sinful. The law was given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Right? In other words, until Jesus arrived. And it was put in place by angels, through angels, by an intermediary. It, wasn't, it in itself was an intermediary thing. It was a temporary thing to help people recognize and see their sin and realize their, their need for grace and their need for a Savior and their need for a King. Right? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Paul says because if a law had been given that could have given life, then you would have found righteousness by the law. But the fact is there is no such law. No Jewish law has ever been given that will give you righteousness. It is impossible. It's not what the law was there to do. Right? A little bit of background into why Paul is speaking that. Let's jump back into Galatians chapter 5. This is what Paul is at pains for them to see, that, that that cannot be the law and Christ. And the thing is, it also it can't just be the law either, because the law by itself actually doesn't work. It doesn't make you righteous before God. It's only designed to lead you to Him. You can only have Jesus. It's the only way, right? There's no both ends. That was perfect, Jackie. Thank you. Righteousness with God is only found through Jesus Christ. There simply is no other way. That's the heart of what Paul is saying in this argument. And I hope, I hope as we do that, there are some of you, and you're sitting here, and you're like, well, Brad, this is, it's been a really interesting history lesson. We've learned a lot about the Galatian churches and the stuff that they were wrestling with. But you know, for me, I don't really battle with incorporating the Jewish law into my faith. I don't even know what it is, and uh, it doesn't really change my life every day as I try and live by it. Well, that's great. I, I hope you're in that space, right? Because as we read Scripture, we should always be asking the question, what does this actually mean for me? How does this relate to me? How does this make meaning and sense in my life? And so I want to land this passage in the reality of how we live. And now, as Christians, 2,018 years later. Right? So, and then we're going to close as we look at Paul's last two verses. But, but let's talk about living in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. You see, the, the problem that the Galatian church was having was that they had become convinced that they needed to add something to their faith in Christ in order for God to accept them. That, that was the thing. They, they, had, they had failed to recognize that Jesus was enough. They felt they needed to add something. They needed to uphold something. They needed to fulfill something. They needed to be better at something in order for God to find them worthy. Right. And this is where Paul has such great news for them. And that great news is great for us as well today. Right? It's still the good news. This is the essence of the gospel. Paul says there is nothing that you can do as a person sitting here today. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can add. There is nothing that you need to achieve that will ever win you any more favor with God than what Jesus has already won for you. There is no amount of hard work. There is no amount of getting your life into shape that will ever make you more righteous, more pure, more beautiful before God than what Jesus has already done for you. That's the gospel. 
That's the good news. You don't need to strive. You don't need to work. You don't need to try really hard to just get things right. And doesn't matter. I know. I know. Often, as you hear this, you can you can be you can feel so unworthy. I, I've had a couple of non-Christian friends, and as I've been chatting with them, they've said to me, "You know, Brad, if God just knew, like if I know how how bad I am, if God knows what a terrible person I am, why would He ever want to be with me?" Why would he ever why would he ever declare me to be to be clean, to be righteous, to be good? It's it's not who I am. I know that. As I look in my heart, and yet that's what God does. Because he so desperately desires to be with us and for us to be with him and to know that that's the best thing we could ever have. That he opens that up for us by Jesus. And I want, to, I want to pause this morning because I know most of you are sitting here and you've been Christians for a long time, probably longer than me, and that's wonderful. Right? And we'll talk about what Paul's saying to us in a moment. But there might be some of us here, and this is a bit of a sense I had in the week, and it's a bit of a sense we had even in the prayer meeting, that there might be some of us here where God has been at work in your lives. And, and you have kind of strayed away, and, and you're not really... You're not really in this Christian thing. And you, maybe someone's dragged you along to church this morning or you felt like you should be here for whatever reason. You found us on the website and you thought you'd pop in. There's an opportunity this morning where you get to, to respond to that little niggling, that little tugging that's at the back of your mind that's poking you and saying, you know what? Maybe there's a moment where I can, actually, I can come to him. Maybe there's a moment where I can give my life over to the king. And so I'd like to ask you to just close your eyes. All of us this morning, we can just close our eyes, give some privacy. Right? And I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. I'm not going to ask you to step forward, stand up, come to the front. But in your own heart, if you recognize, if you recognize that niggling, that niggling of the spirit that's just saying, you know what? Maybe today, maybe I need to give this thing a go. Maybe I need to turn my heart back to God. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm tired of all the striving and I'm tired of never being good enough and, and I'm trying to, tired of trying to get my own life in order. And I'm tired of just feeling broken. And I just want to be whole again. I, I, want to be, I want to know this relationship with God that people keep talking about. There's a moment for you, there's an opportunity, there's always an opportunity, but there's an opportunity now to respond. And you can, just, you can just pray with me as we pray. You can just invite Jesus to come and to be a part of your life. You can say with me, you say, God, I can't believe that you would love me. You know all the ways in which I've gone astray. You know all the times that I've failed and fallen short, I've messed up, all the sin that I've done. God, you know that I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to have that relationship that you so eagerly desire with me, even though I don't understand that. So that this morning, I want, to, I want to ask Jesus that you would forgive me for the stuff that I've done. And I want to, I want to come to you, and I, I want to acknowledge you, and I want to say, I, I believe that you are real. I believe that you are God. I believe that you came, and that you want to be my king. And I, I want to choose to follow you this morning. I'm going to invite you in. I want to know what it means to be a son or daughter of the Most High King. I want to stop striving to be the person I've never been able to be, and I want to be the person you've created me to be. 
you've prayed that prayer in your hearts this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray, Father, that you would send your Spirit into the lives of these children who have given their lives to you. I want to pray that you pour into them your grace and your love, that you speak over them your affection for them, that you tell them, God, how wonderful they are in your sight, how deep your love is for them. I pray you pour out your forgiveness over them, God. They would feel the incredible warmth of the Spirit washing over their hearts and lives. And that you would welcome them into your kingdom as sons and daughters. Amen. Amen. If you are one of those people, I'd love to encourage you to chat to someone that you came with, maybe a friend that you know, a Christian friend. Or if you want to come and chat to myself or Jeff and any of the elders here, we invite you to do that as well. It's a wonderful moment. It's a beautiful thing to come into the kingdom of God. But this morning's message is not just a message for those who are outside the kingdom. It's not just a message for those who want to become children. It actually was written to Christian people. And there's a message for us as Christians that we need to catch and we need to hear in this as well. Just like the Christians in Galatia did. See, if you took the Jewish law and you, you removed the kind of ceremonial part of it that involved the temple and the sacrifices, right? if you had to look at the fulfillment of the moral law, it would look a lot like things good Christians would do. In fact, if we were to rewrite the law today, um, it might, might look a little bit like this. Right? If we were to say this, good Christians go to church regularly. It's a very important part of being a good Christian. Did you know our average attendance in Musenberg is once every three weeks? Right? We obviously don't have enough good Christians in Musenberg. Regular church attendance is an important part of being a good Christian. Right? You also, as a good Christian, you need to be a generally good person. Right? Generally good people, they don't drink, smoke, they don't swear, they definitely don't steal. Right? Not allowed as a good person. But you, you need to be a generous person, you definitely give to the church. Right? Be generous, give to charity, give to those who need help people at robots. Important part of being a good person. It's important that you have a good biblical knowledge, right? That you always know how to answer the questions that the pastor asks from the pulpit, right? So you can be that person who sticks up there. I know that one. I know that age Josiah became king. I know Hezekiah is not a book in the Old Testament, right? It's important that you have a good Christian reputation, right? Maybe you've been a leader in the church or you're an influential member. People know you. People respect you. Your word carries an authority, it's important that you have a, a good track record in your faith. You've got a list of the number of times where, where God has used you in the lives of other people or where you've really stepped out for Him in faith and, and you've seen God come through. It's important you know, that you have a good track record in your faith. It's important that you have good devotional habits. Fasting, very important. Meditation, all, all the patterns that we're talking about in the evening service, that needs to be a part of your life, right? You can't go a day without having your quiet time. That's a Christianese term for alone time with the Lord. Right? It's important that you have your quiet time every single day. It's also important that you dress respectably all the time. We've got no time for people that don't dress respectably. Right? So now I've spoken these things a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I hope you forgive me for that. I don't mean to be offensive. Because these things are actually good things. They're actually really good things. There's nothing wrong with them. But the problem is when we pursue these things, because we think somehow they're going to gain us some favor with God. Or somehow they're going to make us better people than the person sitting next to me. Right? You are not more valuable to God than the person sitting next to you because you had a quiet time every morning this week. 
That doesn't, that doesn't make, make you more, it also doesn't make you more indispensable. God is not, you know, not able to use the person next to you because you had more quiet times than them. Right? It's not about leveraging God's favor or leveraging our standing amongst other people by doing these things. It's what Paul is trying to get at. Is it's the heart, it's the motive behind our action that really matters. Right? And this is where he kind of lands it in the next two verses. So let's read that together. He says this, he says, Those of us who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or uncircumcised. It's not about whether you're a good Christian or a bad Christian. It's not about whether you have done the list of things that are expected of a good Christian or not. What's important is that your faith expresses itself in love. Let me illustrate that to you with a little story. All right. my, um, I love my wife dearly. We've been married for just over a year now, which makes me very experienced in the area of marriage. My darling wife, her thermostat is broken. Right? She does not receive temperature well. And so um, she will be freezing cold. Most of the time she's really, I'm sweating. It is hot. I'm dying. And yet Glenda is cold. Right? And uh, so winters are tough for us, the one winter we've been through together. That are, right? Winter is a cold time in Cape Town. We trust God won't call us to a colder place because that would be even more interesting. Right? We'll see how that goes. But winter is tough. Glenda gets really cold. And so she has come from a home where on most winter nights there is a blanket on the couch, there is a gas heater in the room, and the fireplace is going. Right? There's a lot of heat, and it makes her very happy. Unfortunately, for a newly married couple, heaters are quite expensive. Some of you may know that, right? And so that's that. And she was like, please, can we get I was like, love, I would love us to have a heater, but we just, we can't afford to buy one right now. And so this winter was quite a challenging time. But thankfully, uh, I'm a part of my uh, bank, First National Bank, who I love dearly. And uh, they have a reward system called eBucks. Some of you may know about them. And uh, I managed to accumulate some eBucks over a period of time. And uh, eventually, I had a look on the eBucks store, and I realized that with these free eBucks that I had acquired, I could afford to buy a gas heater at the discount they had on the store. So, so what I did was, without telling Glenda, I went and ordered this heater. It got delivered um, with a gas bottle, and I left work slightly early one day, and I went through, and I set it up in the lounge, and I turned it on, and I went off to play soccer. Guys, can I tell you, I came home that night to the happiest wife I have ever seen in my life. I, I think Glenda was more stoked that night than when we got married. Uh, it, this was an absolute game changer. She was so excited. Do, do you think I did that to win favor with her, to score husband points? Huh? No. <laughs> I also didn't do it, those of you haters out there. <laughs> I also didn't do it to go rub it in my friends' faces and tell them what a great husband I'd been. Right? And you guys should all buy heaters for your wives because then you can also be cool like me. I did it because I just knew how much joy it would bring her. And when I came home and just seeing how happy she was because she had a heater, such a simple thing made my heart glow. Right? And it was wonderful and it was beautiful. That's what Paul is talking about. That's how we live as good Christians. It's, it's out of love. It's when we really love someone, your heart delights to make them happy. Hey? 
You just, you just love to do it. You love to bless them because you see the joy in their heart, and that blesses you. That's what Paul says, faith expressing itself in love. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts to try and score favor, to rack up a list of things I did for you, so next time I need you to do something for me, I've got a, you know, a thing to, to, to bargain with. It's about loving someone and doing the things that love them. So that's what God calls us to as Christians. It's not about trying to add the law to our faith. It's not about trying to be a good Christian and check all the boxes and strive to be perfect. It's about loving our King and letting Him love us. And as we do that, we will begin to see our faith expressing itself in love. Okay? All right, let's let's close in prayer, and then we're going to go and grab some tea and coffee together in the Connect Cafe. Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful for what you have done for us. God, you are so worthy of our devotion and our affection. Even if you had never saved us, even if, Jesus, you hadn't humbled yourself, become a man, been subject to the law, offered up your life that we might live, conquered death, risen again, ascended on high, even if you had never done any of that, you would be worthy of our praise. You'd be worthy of our devotion and our adoration and our allegiance. And so, God, we love you even more for the incredible grace that you've lavished on us. We thank you that in the gospel, in the good news, that Jesus has bought for us freely what we could never achieve in and of ourselves. Thank you, God, that there is a freedom in Christ that we have from all striving, from all trying to impress, that we don't need a bargain favor with you in order to get you to, to work on our behalf or to love us. You've, you've just won it for us, and you love for us to be with you in your presence. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. And I pray for us, Lord, that we would be a people that live out our faith in love as we love you and love the people that are around us. And I pray for us, God, I pray that that if you have been speaking to us in our hearts and we've just recognized those moments where we have allowed pride to kind of grab a hold in our hearts, We've allowed ourselves to, to think that we're indispensable to your plans, that we're better than others, that, you know, that, that per, the fact that someone else does that means that they're, they're how, could, how could they really be a Christian doing that? We've judged others for some of the things that they've done. God, won't you, won't you forgive us? Won't you lead us in repentance, God? So it wouldn't be about the stuff that we do, but it would be about our love for you. We ask that, God, in your wonderful and your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.